You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome to the Interactome. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Interactome. This is Natalie coming straight to your listening ears. We are here with um, another episode, another guest. Super excited to kick it off, pass it along to the other folks I have um, with me on this episode. But first, I will say, um, I'm looking at my lovely friends on Zoom and Joe asked me what, you know, thought I was wearing a robe and no, I'm wearing a t-shirt and this is a t-shirt I thrifted and it has two cells on it and it says biology, the only science where multiplication and division are the same thing. (laughs) <laughs> we're not talking about biology today that. but um joe was like oh what's on your shirt and i was like oh it's science related i'll just wait till we started recording so giving you guys that little little update anyway it's natalie i'll pass it along to other folks and then we can introduce our guest hey guys uh joe here uh big uh big life sciences nerd but obviously we're not talking about life sciences today and i'm looking forward at, to learning more as a non-expert yeah, same here. Hey, it's Sarah. It's been a while since I've been on here, but I'm excited to hear from our guest. On this episode today, we have our guest, Riley Renner. She is a UMass grad along with everybody on this call, UMass Amherst. Um, Woo! Excited to give that shout out. But today we're talking about something that we haven't really talked on the show today, and it's um, GIS. So I'm not sure if Uh, Our listeners really know what that is. I, for sure, don't know what that is. I've heard it in passing, um, and we've, you know, talked a little bit about it uh, in episode planning, but I'm really excited to jump in. So um, I'm just going to hand it over to Riley, and you can give us uh, the whole spiel. Say hello to the the people. Hey, everyone. So this is Riley Renner, and I'm really excited to be sharing a little bit about GIS with you all today. Um, So I discovered GIS back while I was at UMass Amherst studying geology and economics. And I heard this word GIS floating around the geosciences department, surrounded by some mystique. Um, It sounded like people were really excited about this new technology. This was back in 2016. At least it was new to me. It's been going on since the 1800s. But when I first heard about this, I got really excited and tried to get in as soon as I could to the introductory course. And I remember kind of the moment I realized that GIS was what I wanted to do um, for my career. And I was halfway through the introductory course at UMass. I had this like four hour lab session where I was just, you know, making a map, solving some problems and answering questions about the map that I was making and the data that I was kind of playing with. And I remember being in this incredible flow state And there was this moment of clarity where I noticed that I was so engaged in what I was doing and I was so focused and excited about learning through this tool that I just discovered. Um, And 
that was the moment where I realized this was what I want to do for my career. So I... Can I interject real quick and just ask, um, what were you making? You were answering questions about, I believe you said it was a map. What were you doing? Like, what were you mapping? So it's a little fuzzy thinking back, but I remember I had a roads layer on the map and I think like water bodies and we were talking about spraying a pesticide to mitigate the uh, the spread of like mosquitoes and, and a disease they were carrying. Cool. Wow. Um, and so you, you kind of, you, you had this moment, this, you were in this flow state, uh, how did, how did things kind of develop from there? Yeah. So once I realized that I wanted to do GIS, that that was really feeding me, I applied for some GIS internships and I ended up, uh, working at the UMass physical plant mapping campus assets. So things like lampposts. Um, benches just to create an inventory of everything that our campus owned so that we could better maintain and replace things as needed. Oh, very cool. So as we've kind of been talking about this, right, we've called it GIS. I think the burning question is, what does that stand for? And when I kind of went into, you know, this episode, we knew we were going to talk to you, from from my understanding, it was geographic information systems, but I believe that doesn't kind of cover all of it. So maybe give us a little bit about just what GIS stands for and what it kind of encompasses. Sure. So the simplest way I like to describe it is map data. We talk about geospatial and you mentioned GIS as in geographic information systems, and that can be described as a system that creates, manages, analyzes, and maps all types of data um, using technologies like computers and GPS. But there's also another component of GIS, and that is the science um, of applying the theory and concepts behind implementing the technology and, and the data management systems behind GIS. So do you need geographic information systems or system to perform geographic information science? Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Okay. And so GIS, the thing that I like most about it um, and liked from the very start is that it's this tool that can be applied in a really cross-disciplinary manner. It is pretty holistic, like it considers um, ideally many perspectives. Um, It compares different layers of different variables. Um, It has both a visual component and that is like the cartography, the map, but also attributes. So if you have, you know, a lamppost on the map, you can tell what type of lamppost it is, what type of light bulb it has. Maybe there's an asset ID on it. And so the visual component on the map uh, helps you track the geospatial aspect, whereas the attributes add more of that data science, like informative, like let's, let's learn about how, like what things are and how they relate to each other. Hmm. This is, this is really cool. I definitely think, uh, as a, uh, like in the life sciences, um, we do a lot of stuff with like large sets of data, but none of it is really spatial. Uh, we kind of leave that more to the, the epidemiologists and stuff like that, but it, it would be like, I can just, as you're kind of sharing this, I can definitely, like, I I feel inspired. I'm really curious to, like, 
dig in a little more, see if I can use this for some of my own experiments, selfishly. I also have a question that kind of just came to me. So you measure things spatially. How do you keep or how do you take into account things that move? Right? Things that if move. You're, if you're using GIS for maybe like to measure the population of like a given species, right? And that species, sure, they might be confined to kind of like one um, region or area, which might be enough. Um, but yeah, how how is that used? I'm going a little rogue here, but that kind of just popped into my head. <laughs> That's a great question. And that really comes down to your data collection methodology. That's something that I don't do a whole lot of right now, but I would imagine that GPS dots... Um, which are used to track snowplows, can also be tra used to track things like birds or whales. Um, True, like you chip them and stuff. Like you see that on Animal Planet all the time. For sure. And like as long as you can collect their GPS coordinate, that's something you can plot on a map. And as long as that data, that data collection system sends out consistent like data pings, you can collect and map that data. That's interesting because, you know, we talked about how there are two different, essentially, abbreviations for GIS. But the two words, right, that were made the same are geographic information. So I guess part of why I was kind of like, oh, well, things that move, you know, geography, mountains aren't going to move, right? They're not going to, I mean, they do eventually on tectonic, all that kind of stuff. We'll do an episode on that later. Um but is GIS, I guess, only used for geography? Can it be used in other disciplines or, or does it have to have that uh, geographic tie? Yeah, I guess this is a really great point and maybe a common misconception that GIS is, you know, really just for people who discover or people who have studied ge geography, whereas really, I think whatever industry you're in or whatever problems you're trying to solve you can apply these tools to understand a more uh, complete picture, create a model that more closely mimics reality. Um, and I think geospatial is often a missing component of data science. And I think it's very often relevant, even if it's not the first thing that people think about. Why would, why is it typically missing? Like, why is it something that's a little, that's overlooked? So whereas Excel is really widespread, I think there might be another misconception that GIS software is more niche or harder to use, whereas um, in, in my experience, that not, that's not necessarily the case. Um, I find using GIS to be very approachable because of its visual aspect, um, because you can turn different layers on and off yeah. and really um, use the map to explore the problem that you're working with. And it can be a very... Um, can be a very engaging process. I guess for me, it's it's just so it, it that sounds so cool and so foreign to anything that I ever do. Like I use Google Maps on my phone when I'm driving to my friend's house because I can't remember their address. Like I or I can't remember how to get there. Like <laughs> the idea of having a, almost you're almost like. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but like you're almost describing like it feels like kind of like a 3D interactive map of like your entire um, data set. And you're able to make inferences from that. I just think that's like really cool. For sure. And I think whether your data is 3D or 2D, the idea is that you're building 
or presenting someone who you're doing GIS for a model of reality that informs um, the decisions that they're trying to make that helps them more efficiently understand the problem at hand and kind of rounds out their perspective in a given moment and gives them all the variables that they need to consider without giving them more than they need to consider. That's so cool. It's like, like Natalie said, a technology that I wouldn't have even ever thought of, right? Like I don't, this doesn't exist in my mind. So like to hear about it is amazing. But I'm also kind of going back to what you said earlier about how it can just be used for so many different applications. Do you have any any good examples of that? Like some really broad things from like apples to oranges, like how broad can this get? Sure. So um, it's really common in infrastructure and public works. If you think about maintaining a city um, with needing to keep track of where all your utilities are, if you want to dig somewhere, knowing what's there, knowing how deep you can dig, that's one use case, utility management. Another use case might be um, tracking uh, your supply chain in a store, or let's say you're a retailer and you want to build a new store and you want to understand not only where are your existing stores, but where's the population? Where might there be demand for your product based on not only your other locations, but maybe your competitors and and factoring that all in to make this decision of where to you know build a store, which is a huge investment. It helps to have some data behind that cause. And if you're only if you're not looking at a map, you're missing a huge piece of the picture. I have a question. Um, I uh, regrettably I am not uh, particularly skilled in coding, even though I'm slowly working towards that. If I want to use GIS or things like that. Like, I mean, I'm sure there are programs available, but do I need to be like an expert in coding in order to use this kind of thing? Are there publicly available tools? Like how, like, how does one start, like if, if one is interested in getting to, starting to use GIS, like how does one start doing that? That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of free tools that can be used online. There's also paid tools that maybe will get you further. Um, but it depends what problem you're trying to solve. Um, for most things, you will be able to find many low or no code options. Um, most of it is just learning how to use different sort of, we call them geoprocessing tools that um, run different sorts of analyses on data or um, using tools to change the cartography, like changing the color or the shape of the symbols that you're looking at, maybe adding labels to the roads or something. Um, so most of what you can do, most of the things can be done without looking at code at all, but there's also plenty of opportunity if you want to start automating processes or um, really customizing things. You can use things like Python to further the capabilities of, of the software you're using. As if Joe needs another project right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um kind of related to that um like is this is this something that's like like if i have a question like i mean like if i if i have a hypothesis like would you say that this is like i'm kind of struggling to 
conceptualize like is this something that can be used for like hypothesis generation or is it more for like investigating hypotheses like how would you frame that like it seems like it's kind of both um i don't know if you'd agree with that or not for sure i think you know having a, a hypothesis having some idea about the problem that you're trying to solve or having some direction going in can really help you in formulating the factors you'll need to consider the data layers you'll want to put on that map and uh you know understand relations between um however it can also be an exploratory thing. You might have a sense of the variables involved in a problem, but have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And the great thing that is that the great thing about GIS is in both of those scenarios, um, GIS will be able to um, point you in either the direction of an, an answer or uh, maybe more of an answer than you started with to begin with. Cool. Um, shameless plug here. If you want to learn a little more about hypothesis generating, check out episode 17, What the Heck is Mass Spec, to learn a bit more about hypothesis-free work. But um, yeah, anyways, back to our regularly scheduled program. Um, I guess um, kind of related to that, like what would you say you're doing right now, like hypothesis generating versus investigating? Like, or would you say you're doing things kind of like that? How... Like, I, I'm just curious to learn more about, like, the work that you're doing right now. Sure. So I currently work for a company called Esri, who makes geospatial software. And my role is working with customers to either do projects for them based on uh, the business problems that they're trying to solve or guide them through doing those projects on their own. Um, sometimes teaching them how to use the technology and, and think about GIS along the way. Um, in terms of hypotheses, I think a lot of customers are coming to us um, looking for maybe data visuals um, or maintaining data. We're not always actively testing a hypothesis. Uh, sometimes it's more about um, preparing them to to have the data and the visualizations and the apps they uh, we'll need to eventually solve a problem. Like I think a lot of the work we do is inspired by wanting to solve certain problems, but it might not be um, necessarily a, a thing that happens on the same day that we create the app. Like it's we're creating the app and giving that to them to use over time to solve problems over and over again. We're really empowering them to have that capability in an ongoing way. So... One big thing that we talk about on the interactome a lot is that like science doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? You're not going to have one dis like a biologist isn't going to make a groundbreaking discovery just doing biology on their own. Like we've, I feel like we've progressed so much as a society. We need to put disciplines together. And from what it sounds like, it sounds like data science, computer science, I imagine math, Sounds like there's math involved in this. My biggest fear. Um, what What would you say is like, I'm literally not kidding, guys. Like, I still have nightmares that I'm failing math tests. So, like, my biggest fear. I, I'm, it's okay. I'm sorry, Natalie. Me, I've moved on. Um, but clearly not. Anyway, um, what disciplines would you say are, like, involved in this? The ones I named? Are there any additional ones that I'm kind of overlooking? I would say it's 
hard to think of cases where GIS couldn't apply. Hmm. I think if you look back to the origins of GIS, um, it was London in 1854. Cholera had just broken out. And this was like a really common illness at the time. Thousands of people had died in like the prior decade. And there was this doctor named John Snow who thought that cholera might spread by people drinking contaminated water. And he didn't have a lot of luck in convincing other people of this, even though, you know, looking back, it's pretty obvious that their sewage handling wasn't great at the time and it was mixing with drinking water. But anyways, John Snow, he was a doctor and he started mapping the outbreak of cholera um, by putting roads and property boundaries and the water lines and water pumps on a map. And he started seeing a pattern. And here he was hypothesis testing because he already had this idea mm. that maybe maybe it was the water pipes or that or the water pumps that were the source of the outbreaks. Um, and what he found was a correlation of people who frequented the water pumps. Um, you know, sick people were also going there, and and he saw a high cor- correlation, and. He is now credited with not only founding epidemiology, which is the spread of disease, which I'm sure you all know, um, but also founding GIS. Um, And I think that's a great example of how uh, GIS is a field that people come to from all different backgrounds. So not only is it a tool that you can use in many directions, but people come come to it from many different uh, from many different career paths. That's so cool. Oh, yeah. Wow. I also, if I remember correctly, regarding that story, because like in medical school, like we talked about that a little bit too, um, more from the epidemiology side. Um, But um, I think, didn't, maybe I'm misremembering this, maybe we'll have to fact check this afterwards. But I I heard tell um, in in the legend of Jon Snow, um, not the Game of Thrones, Jon Snow, the real life Jon Snow. I almost said the exact same thing. Yeah, the the Jon Snow who knows something rather than nothing. Um, he, um, I think he like didn't he like remove the handles from the like the water pump or something, and then like the uh, the cholera like the cholera outbreak like rate kind of like decreased or something. I'm I'm curious about that. We'll we'll have to go and take a look at it. Um, I may be wrong, um, but. Um, yeah, that's that's something I'm really curious about. Um, but that that's so cool. So you're saying that all, you know, any discipline, or it seems like really any discipline can use GIS for its own gain, insight purposes. What, if you want to, like you said, come to GIS to get answers, what do you need? You know, you can't kind of just like show up to GIS and be like, I want this thing. Like, I'm sure you have to feed something into the system. So like, what does that, what does that look like? For sure. So to me, the quality of GIS, whatever you're creating, whatever map or mapping application or answer is going to be your ultimate uh, goal. What matters the most is the quality of your inputs. So those inputs might include things like data layers, like data you've collected you know, how accurate is that data? Um, do you understand the shortcomings of that data set? Um, along with what, what kind of questions are you asking? 
what are you not considering? Is there anything missing in your mental model of the problem, in your guiding questions that are going to lead you to add certain data or perform certain analyses and not other ones? Like, how do you, how do you make those decisions along the way? And I think ultimately the quality of your result um, is based on the quality of those inputs. And there's something we like to talk about, which is called lying with maps, and that's the concept that with any sort of data science, you can set up the rules such that you get whatever your desired outcome is. And that's something that I personally like to avoid in my work. And I want to make sure that there's as few gaps as possible. Um, there's this quote that I heard a lot back in undergrad, um, and that is, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And that's attributed to statistician George Box. But I really like that quote because it reminds me that we're always trying to get as close as we can to representing reality, but there's always going to be some gaps. And the better we can get about identifying, you know, our unknowns, the, the better our model is going to reflect the problem that we're trying to solve and give us a good result. Forgive me if this is like nowhere kind of near your level of expertise or like your area that you work in, but like you're talking about obtaining data and then using that data in order to run the analysis. So is there like a specific research team that goes out and gets that data and like would peruse a database or literature? Like where are you actually finding that data? Or is that kind of a totally separate thing? That's a really good question. That is kind of the ultimate question for anyone doing GIS is where's your data coming from? Who collected it? Do you trust them? Um, <laughs> A lot of people collect their own data. For example, when I was at UMass, I was out in the field with an iPad on the, the collector app. Now there's there's one called Field Maps, which is better. But uh, the collector app was the old version. And I was out there literally putting points on a map as I, um, as I walked. I had, um, of course, GPS enabled on the iPad so I could see where I was. And then I was looking at a satellite, satellite photo of campus that we had um, flown by a drone like the year prior and so I would see a lamppost on the imagery right near where I was standing and I would put a point there and then fill in the attributes of you know the asset ID and type of lamppost and, and condition it was in things like that so then there's also people who find their data from either a government source um, for example like um, Property boundaries is one, parcels, um, or maybe soil type. Like the government, different entities, whether it's like your, your city or your state, um, have often have GIS clearinghouses where they house data, um, oh, wow. some of which is public, some of which is internal. Um, but a lot of scientists start there um, if they don't have the means to collect their own data. And I think it's so interesting what you said um, about you collecting your own data, right? You, you go to this lamppost and you fill in all this information and then you fill in something like the condition it's in, right? And that's going to vary from different people who are going to be collecting that data. Maybe not a lot, you know, maybe a lot of people are going to say like, Hey, this lamppost is in great condition and give it a sign off. But maybe there's one person that just sees things differently, sees a couple more scratches, you know, maybe the light bulbs out that day. Um, so the, you know, the lamppost gets a, it's like a reduced score. And I think that that's one thing that isn't talked about enough. I think that's a great point. Not only is it maybe differing 
ideas of what constitutes one attribute versus the other, um, which comes down to your, your model. Like ideally you design a schema. Um, ideally you consider just what's relevant to the problem at hand. And even then someone could be in the field and you have to account for some amount of user error, or at least consider that some of your data might not be 100% accurate. And I think that's another thing, in, like as a scientist, you can't always aim for 100% because that's not realistic. Often something like 90% is really good when it comes to data, you know, higher if possible. I'd imagine too, not to open the can of worms, and we don't really have to talk about this further either. I'm like as I'm kind of sitting here thinking I'd imagine since you're working you know with so many different sectors and fields and data that there's probably at some point a question of ethics and like data privacy and security and like how are we using that data and how are we using it in a fair and good way um I don't know if you're able to speak on that at all or if that's more of like a legal thing in the world of GIS but I just find it interesting. And that's something I think about a lot too. Just, I mean, this is going to be a huge part of probably all of our lives. Like as we move forward into all of our careers, data is going to become huge and, you know, a valuable source of information, but also something that's, you know, that needs to be protected. So curious to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And that's one thing that we do our best to advise customers on at the end of the day. It's their decision about what, what data they put where, but we do have um, we do have recommendations on how to handle things like PII, which is personally or personal identifiable information, which is any representation of information that allows the identity of an individual to be um like reasonably inferred and that's an incredibly broad definition so things like name phone number you know with covid things like contact tracing that's a lot of health information too and so it's really important that the way people are storing their data is watertight that not more people have access to that data than than need to for their job and that those people are trusted to work ethically that that is a definitely a big question right now with how much data is floating around about each of us in the world i think about that a lot just about how much of like my data is just like out there and people you know who are savvy like that can just go and like look at it like can just find it you know i don't know i'm getting existential but I think, you know, like you said, we're, we're, there's just so much data being created every day and it's like, we, you know, just need to be responsible with it. I, I'm going to say something pretty existential that may actually be incorrect, um, but it seems like anything can be data if you try hard enough uh, or to make it data. <laughs> like, the, like, I mean, I, I like... I'm trying to think of something absurd, like, I don't know, the number of times I've played my kazoo today, um, like, plot that against the uh, the quantity of cheese I consumed over the week and see if there's a relationship. You can, you can see that, um, that like, I mean, you can, you can, like, whether the relationship is accurate or not, is an, an, or, or is, like, there, whether there's actually a legitimate causal relationship between those two variables is certainly a completely different matter, but it seems like you can find some way to at least in theory quantify a large number of like aspects of our reality. Um, and 
I mean, whether the way in which you quantify it is accurate or not. Um, like, I mean, for example, if we're quantifying people's hair color, like some people would look at my hair and say, oh, that is black. Other people would look at it and say it's brown. So there certainly is some kind of like subjectivity in um, like certain kinds of data generation but um, or data kind of collection in some cases. But it seems like at least to an extent, uh, anything can be data if, if we frame it in the right way which is wild to me. Uh, yeah, that's my existential point for the night. Um, yeah. We are surrounded by information, <laughs> and I think it really comes down to, you know, what's relevant to the question that you have because yeah. because there's so much data, it can be hard hard to filter through what's going to, you know, lead you to your answer. And, you Absolutely. know, like you said, you know, you can guide it to kind of see one answer, right? And, you know, it's really important to be objective and, and not do that. So, um, but you live and breathe this stuff every day. It seems you, you know, you found uh, GIS, you're extremely passionate about it. Um, and like Joe said, it's like you, you know, you can quantify almost anything into a measurable data metric, what are some ways that you've used maybe GIS skills or GIS tools in your everyday life? So one example I'm thinking about is I really like cheese. I like cheese so much that <laughs> last year for my birthday, I hosted a party whereby I invited all my friends over for a cheese potluck party. So I had them all bring me cheese on my birthday. It was lovely. And That's genius. That's... <laughs> however, not cheesy at all. <laughs> however, I am also a nerd, and so part of this cheese potluck party was designing an app that, whereby <laughs> <laughs> designing an app where each of the people who brought cheese could first enter their cheese, so they could enter where they got the cheese, what type of cheese it was. Um, where in the world that cheese was um, created. Um, I don't know if created the right word for cheese. <laughs> where the cheese was made. And some other attributes about the cheese, right? And then the second, the second thing was a survey that people could take saying every time they tried one of these cheeses, they could rate the cheese based on characteristics such as taste and scent and um, texture and um, they could vote on their favorite cheese essentially and then the third component of this app was a dashboard that showed which cheeses had the best taste and scent and texture and which ones were liked the most overall and um, th like they had ratings for all of these things and there was um, a, like a leaderboard chart of, of the cheese that was the, the most well-loved. I think Cheez-Its scored really Amazing. high for some reason. Cheez-Its. <laughs> I'm curious. Cheez-Its. What, what did the data say? Like, what? Oh. which is the top-tier cheese? There's this, there's this cheese with, like, a purplish rind from Trader Joe's, and the name escapes me, but that was one of the best-liked cheeses besides Cheez-Its. <laughs> oh, was that the kind with the blueberry? Amazing. It's the cheese with the um, blueberry around it. It's like, it's like purple, right? It's, 
Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about because I love the cheese section at Trader Joe's and I only shop at Trader Joe's. And so if I've had this kind <laughs> of cheese honestly before, a really good place for it. Can't attest that cheese is good. Amazing. Amazing. We, we, are, we are not funded by Trader <laughs> Joe's. We have no sponsorships. Uh, this, is, this is purely the opinions of the people on this podcast. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really funny. Um, wow. Yeah, I'd, I'd be very curious if we got, like, a like a very large group of people. I'm assuming that you had, uh, like, a, a, a good number of people. Um, but, like, if we increase the sample size even more, like, what is the best cheese? I think, I think I hope you keep your app. And <laughs> we, can, we can use it further. Um, that is the question. But, yeah. Um, kind of Kind of related to that, like, or this whole thing. Like, it seems like to really get a understanding or, or to, to build a good model. Um, like, obvi- like all model, as you said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Beautiful quote. I love it so much. I, like, uh, for context uh, to our listeners, uh, Riley shared this quote with me, like, a, like a year or six months ago, I think. I can't remember. Uh, and I've been thinking about it on and off since then. It's a beautiful quote. Um, but... Um, it really does seem like to build, like to think, be able to make a good model, you have to know the right question to ask. And I kind of wanted to put it out to everyone. Like, what do, what do we, what do we think about that idea? Like asking the right questions. How do we, how do we get to that point and make a quote, good model, like in GIS or any other field in general? To me, good questions really start with good observation. And in order to observe well, I think, in a way that correlates with reality, um, it's important to keep an open mind to not get in the way of what you're seeing, to not let your own bias um, impact what you're doing with the data. And of course, we all have biases on it. So I think it's a constant, um, constant journey to be mindful of how you are getting in the way of, of your, your journey and what questions you might not be asking that might yeah. um, really inform what you're after. Um, and also thinking about things from different uh, perspectives, maybe like really high level versus detailed or different stakeholders who are involved in a given issue. Um, I think ultimately up to us, our model and, and the meaning we derive from the model is it's up to us to derive that meaning and that meaning really starts with the inputs we consider or don't consider. Yeah. Wow. My, I am clapping for, for those who are listening. Like that, Wow. Uh, that, that's given me a lot to think about. So Riley, I know you've been great in explaining a lot about GIS to us. And then of course your experiences and models of cheese Um, which I need that app, by the way. Um, But I wanted to ask you more personally, uh, where do you want to go in the future with the career and what parts of the field interest you the most? That's a great question. Um, There's a large part of me that wants to stay technical, working with the software, um, maybe exploring automation further. Like I've been delving into Python recently and I really enjoy being in that headspace like this intense flow state. Coding is still pretty hard for me, but um, I find it to be very rewarding and I feel like it's a a growth edge that I want to lean into there. Um, 
And I think also expanding my high-level understanding of all the ingredients that make uh, an organization successful with GIS. Like a lot of my customers are new to GIS or new to applying GIS in certain ways that I'm walking with them through. And I'm often learning just as much as they are during that process um, about how I can be more effective in guiding that process um, or the many the many things that can go wrong along the way so I can get better at accounting for those over time. Um, and so really, I want to continue being kind of like a guide into the world of GIS for people, whether they've been working with it for a long time or not. I love exploring together. Um, I still find it really rewarding. I've been doing it for almost five years now, and every day is a little bit different. So I love being in that space where I can continually be learning new things. It's nice. You want to guide people and it's like you're guiding us on like what it is, walking us through it, our listeners. Um, so thank you so much for for taking the time today to speak with us. This was a really interesting conversation and, you know, um, we learned a lot for sure. Um, if there's one thing that you would want our listeners to kind of take away from this whole conversation, what do you think that would be? Like what if for people who aren't familiar with GIS or the kind of the philosophy behind GIS that we've been talking about a little bit, like what what would you say? I think there would be two things I would mention is one, don't be afraid to explore, like just get your hands on the software um, and start playing around. See, see where it takes you. See if you like it, um, if that's something you're interested. And the other thing would be um, if you've never considered GIS before. Maybe um, there could be some value in considering how geospatial could round out whatever you're doing um, in helping you make decisions or helping create efficiencies um, in, in the work you do and helping make your job easier ultimately. Nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep those things in mind for sure. Joe, are you about to have a career switch? <laughs> yeah. yeah, GIS time. Uh, no, in all honesty, like, I mean, I'll probably, Riley, uh, I know I, I, I have, for our listeners, I have mentioned this before, but there may come a point where I, I do need your, your guidance, uh, in this sense. Um, but yeah, it'd be cool to map, like, I don't know, like different chemical exposures across the country or something like that. That'd be cool. Um, don't know how exactly how to quantify that, but something to think about for the future. You guys are thinking about how you can use it in your careers. I'm like, Oh, like maybe I'll throw a cookie party and like try to like <laughs> instead of like a cheese party and then make everyone bake cookies for me. And I can't build an app. So Riley, I'd need your help building the app, but then you'd get an invite to the cookie party. It'd be a whole thing. <laughs> I, uh, Natalie, you got to invite me too. I think, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say the blueberry white chocolate chip cookie recipe that I found is one of the best cookie recipes I've ever had in my life. So you might not even need the GIS data to determine which cookie is the best hey. one. <laughs> hey, send me the recipe. All data is objective, right? So I'll make that decision for myself. This is not subjective at uh, all. Sub no. <laughs> Subject, not objective. <laughs> I'm teasing you now. <laughs> I honestly didn't know which word no. it was going to be. No, no worries. <laughs>
for context, everyone, we're recording this late at night. We're all we're all tired, and that's why we we've devolved into. And now I'm hungry, so Jeez. thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I need I need food after this. But like, wow, Riley, thank you so much for coming on. This was this has been really fun and definitely a lot to think about and potentially use in the future. I'm sure our listeners have probably uh, learned a lot from you about this really uh, underappreciated field. Um, and yeah, and maybe we'll, uh, we'll have you, we'd love to have you back in the future. Absolutely. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Great. And before uh, we are all done, I'm just going to plug the Interactum social for our listeners. We do this at the end of every episode. So on Instagram, we're Interactome underscore media. And then on Twitter, we are at the Interactome. We'll see you there. Catch you next time. See you next time.